April Little. And I'm Anna Dowher. And on this episode of Reclaiming the Garden, we are interviewing the Jennifer Knapp. Um, kind of yes. kind of wild. Um, I've talked about how I met her in the actual interview proper, but it's sort of another sort of dream come true guest. Um, and, you know, getting to really hear a lot of her story was just so nice and um yeah really powerful and i'm glad that she's still doing work today in the lgbtq christian sphere um and so here's the bio for jennifer she is a grammy nominated singer songwriter author speaker and advocate Uh, her impressive history includes selling over one million albums with their first three releases uh, she's earned Damn. four Dove Awards, so technically I'm like, oh, well, there, we do have a queer artist who's received <laughs> some Dove Awards, yes, even though it was do. before she came out. Um, and she's toured the globe with artists such as Jars of Clay, um, except she walked away from music um, because she talks about that in the interview. And um, mm-hmm. as the first major artist in the Christian music world to speak openly about LGBTQ identity, her unique position created opportunities for national dialogue, including appearances on Larry King Live and the TEDx stage. In 2012, Nat founded the nonprofit organization Inside Out Faith, through which she continues to speak and perform nationally as an advocate for LGBTQ plus and faith issues. Um, a true Renaissance woman, Nat, Nat recently convened completed a master's degree in theological studies at Vanderbilt Divinity. Oh, I didn't actually even know that. Huh. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, um, enjoy our interview with her. Um, well, thanks so much for, for coming on. I'm so glad to have you because, I mean, I remember last year it was kind of surreal um, meeting you, Jennifer, at um, you were doing this like small performance at the well. And because I have UMC connections, I was able to just come um and then I like chatted with you afterwards and you were like, I'd love to be on your podcast sometime. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean, and when I actually like first met you, I didn't quite recognize you because I was thinking of all the images of like the long flowing hair. And I, um, I made a comment that the, like all the snacks on the, t- I just made a comment like to you that all the snacks on the table were from Trader Joe's. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I realized I was like, oh, I just said that to Jennifer Knapp. <laughs> well, all I gotta say is like I'm sure did I have a conversation about how like my I have a shopping fairy that loves Trader Joe's so oh yeah just, just about like my, yeah just just about like at least seventy five percent of my pantry is Trader Joe's so I mean you know my and it's good is che- too good cheap wine <laughs> good cheap very good wine but very cheap like so it, it keeps our like yes. our post COVID drinking habits going <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, I lived off of Trader Joe's frozen food in college. Their orange chicken just kept Just alive. saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so, so, we, so I'm trying, to remember, start with I'm, our I'm trying to remember what I was doing at the UMC. I was I was just kind of hanging out and doing some Iowa, like, It was like a private stuff, show, I, I guess. Um, well, it was also, well, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I performed a bit. And I guess you might have, yeah, I have I think a long you might have history a there at the things, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a long history there at the well. And, you know, whenever I'm in town and have a little bit of free time, it's nice to be able to stop by and, and hang out for a little bit. So I think I was up in June, I think, uh, last summer, because I went up to uh, do uh, a Pride Festival in Stanwood. 
if I remember right, Justin White's church up in Stanwood. And so I was, you know, on my way through and I gave a shout out to Queen Anne, up uh, Queen Anne's UMC and wanted to hang out with Katie and, and the crew. So yeah, it was pretty kind of casual g- gathering, but pretty awesome. And then of course I got to meet you and now we're doing a podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Anna has been very excited about this on the, on our podcast yeah, planning sheet in all caps. She wrote Jenner for fucking nap. So. <laughs> so you guys get to have the little E um, by your podcast, like a- I take it. Oh, oh yes, yes. We, you don't, we're not censoring anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. I did a couple of a live, like a couple of the concerts I did in the last month or so were live streamed from the venue. And they were reminding me when we're doing these live streams, one of them was a nonprofit kind of just art house. And they were like, you know, just try and remember not to swear when you're doing the live stream. And sure enough, I did pretty well. Like I didn't, I didn't drop any F-bombs, but I'm pretty sure I cursed a couple of times and I was like, oh, (laughs) I was that quick, like, okay, maybe no one heard it. Just smile. Keep going. Everyone always hears Um, it, but you know. Yeah. Anna, you want to do the honors of asking our initial question? (laughs) Yes. So this is the question we ask everyone and it's a big one and it's lighthearted and fun. Um, it's not, or maybe it is. I don't know. This is a queer Christian podcast. It's usually not a fun question. Um, (laughs) tell us about, um, your faith journey. Like where, where did it begin? Oh, well, you know, the, the easiest place to start is I actually, I guess, officially became a Christian in college that, and when you say that, it's like immediate flag of evangelical experience. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was a good was it Kansas like girl crew, you know. or like, oh, I guess it wasn't called a crew back then, but, uh, mine was, uh, largely through fellowship of Christian athletes. That was oh. kind of my gateway, oh, um, okay. into more organized and sanctioned church life. But, um, you know, like I, I grew up in Kansas okay. in a small town and, you know, I, I think, I don't know. It's just so weird because I didn't realize there was this whole culture. Like after I became, became very interested and, you know, spending a lot of time in church, I didn't realize there was this distinction between like, I don't know, Christian with a a small C and a capital C, I guess is the best way I know how to say it. Because I mean, I grew up and everybody kind of went to church in one way or the other. Some people, you know, more casually, you know, infrequently, but it was still part of your life. And then there are the people who, you know, made a full-time job, you know, every minute, you know, every minute of every day. And that, that kind of ramp up was new to me in college. So, I mean, I, I definitely grew up in and around, you know, church stuff. And when I was a little kid, but, you know, it wasn't until I got around an evangelical community and I, you know, I wouldn't even have known that distinction then. But, you know, I prayed a prayer. I gave my life to Christ when I was like 18 or 19 Mm -hmm. years old, somewhere in there. And kind of like I'll skip way ahead. But within a couple of years, I was, you know, doing a lot of well. So like my my halfway house and kind of integrating into the church life, you know, and kind of was a a fellowship of Christian athletes. It was pretty huge on my college campus. We had like something like 200 and some odd people that met every week. 
and I started playing in the, wow. you know, the, 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 there were like 20 guitars or something like everybody, you know, it's just this big singing round <laughs> of everything and worship music that we just kind of threw all together. No amplification, just tons of guitars and tons of people singing. And that's kind of how I got my thing. And then maybe it took me a year or so to kind of warm to the idea of going to church every Sunday. It's, it was just so tough to get up hung over every Sunday. Sunday morning and go to church. But, um, there was, there was a, I took my discipleship, I guess I was really interested in, in the, I think the part that made Christianity appealing to me was this, the redemptive, you know, the, the story of redemption. And I was definitely at the time kind of looking to, to figure out why on earth all of these people around me were so enthusiastic and, and talking about how much God loved me. And I was just really pulling on the thread, trying yeah. to figure out what that meant. And that, that seemed really appealing to me, I think in a certain, in a particular way, because I, I certainly that I was, that was a, like a difficult time in my life to kind of just try and figure out what, what I even meant to myself. And so in trying to sort that all out, the two yeah. kind of married up together. And before you knew it, like I was like neck deep, in what I would call now is Christian culture. And even though like faith was something that I think, you know, like that's a, that's a really kind of weird way of saying, I think faith has always been some part of my life. I mean, something bigger than ourselves and the contemplation of God wasn't foreign to me at all. It's still something that's very intriguing to me, but this whole other level of evangelical Christianity that I experienced was yeah, ch changing faith into something uh, or like a different experience with faith. It wasn't just, you know, contemplation. It, it had to do all of these other things that went along with it. And that's kind of why I say culture, like making sure you show up at the mm -hmm. spot, making sure you're checking off the list yeah. of things that make you appear to be a good Christian. And it wasn't about having contemplative faith or participating with, with God so much. And that was a big part of it. But there are all of these other things that kind of work that came part and parcel with it to be qualified in the ranks of most of my community. Um, Including, you know, to, being straight. <laughs> exa well, exactly. You know, and I, I think that was, you know, we'll pop right into it. I mean, I think that was one of the most bewildering parts of and very early on in my experience with with being very serious about my faith in this particular environment was the topic of sex. I mean, just all of it, um, you know, anywhere from yeah. college kids, you know, having sex outside. Did of you know, I guess you were queer expected. before going into that context or? No, you know, I really was a late bloomer. I mean, I didn't come out until I've fell in love with my partner. I was like, Oh my God, this makes so much more sense. <laughs> uh, and I oh, was yeah. like, I was in my late twenties and, you know, I just, I didn't grow up with like kind of classic narrative. Oh, I knew I was gay when I was 10 or 12 or something like that. Um, sure. I think it just tracks backwards. When I look backwards, I kind of go, Oh, junior high might've been a little bit different. If that had been an option that I'd seen in yeah. the world, Same. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like it's definitely that hindsight. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, I think, you know, when you, you talk about, you know, I'm 50 years old or going soon to be 50 and growing up in the eighties, it was the, you know, the, I like remember the tail end of the AIDS epidemic 
and in the rural communities and more conservative communities that we, you know, weren't inner cities, weren't the San Francisco's or the New York's, the big towns of the world that had exposure to people in theater who were gay and, you know, none of that stuff. I mean, there were gay people in my hometown even, but it was that something that went from, in my lifetime, something that, that, you know, there were gay people around. It just wasn't this big thing. And then post AIDS epidemic, it kind of got villain, you know, demonized and, and marginalized to an even greater degree. I mean, before it's kind of just, you know, that gal over there, that's her best friend in air quotes, <laughs> you know, and nobody, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really, you know, I didn't see any negative stuff with it. It was just kind of more on the DL or just kind of, we just don't really talk about it. And I think, you know, not seeing that as an op like it just never occurred to me like that was an option that i could even like see if that was an option for me because i didn't see it as an option for me i saw it as something else that other people could do but it just didn't have any context to me so when i got into the church i definitely had a lot of experience with sex all my friends all my girlfriends were virgins and couldn't believe that i wasn't a virgin and every was you know very much you know wanting me to to repent and get clean again and to become, I guess, a born again virgin and kind of conversations Gross. in and around that space. And I was I like, <laughs> it was just really a bizarre concept to me. Of, like I came to Christianity really trying to get out of my own sense of shame and my own sense of, you know, trying to find something positive to see in myself and then walking into an environment that yeah. was in and around sex of which I'd had plenty of experience in, except for with my, my orientation kind of on the sidelines. Um, yeah. Like kind of getting this, this new veil of shame, but with this religious overtone to it was something that just seemed too incompatible to me straight off the bat. And so here, you know, you're in a, in a, oh. in a college hot pot of, you know, just young adults who are being young adults and making connections and getting, you know, starting to develop relationships and starting to think about what the rest of their partners, you know, starting to look for partners, like lifelong partners. Yeah. And the way that kind of works out with the chemistry of people like merit, the ring doesn't always match up with the timeline of when the chemistry and the fireworks go off. And, you know, when Christianity starts to put all that shame in there, and then, you know, other things that I started to hear, like, oh, you're a girl. And I've always presented very tomboy. And I didn't expect yeah. to hear this narrative that, like, oh, all of a sudden my religious duty was now to become a wife and to have children. Oh. And I was just like, this was a real, it was, you know, it seemed really nice at the time. It, it wasn't really, like, shame or driven down. It was just subtle and and persistent and it became integrated into a lot of the conversations about when I was trying to craft my spiritual life and thinking about that, it seemed to always have this very strong component about what my gender, what my gender responsibilities should be, what that should look like, what that should present like. And it just never occurred to me that those were yeah. two things that had any relationship, you know, whatever you are, you know, it made sense to me that whoever you are as an individual and then what moral, you know, what moral and ethical choices we make along that, that line? How do I be, you know, what, what is my ethic with my own body and my own person? What is my ethic with other people? Um, should certainly, I would never argue that that should be a holy 
and 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 dignifying experience uh, with other people. But it was just this interesting kind of dynamic that started off day one. And so I think for a long time, long before I ever kind of realized, you know, the light bulb went off on my sexual orientation, I pretty much was spending a lot of my faith life having some really hard theological tussles on the lines of feminism and mm. and gendered probably more yeah. like gender gender identities and, and issues and just to see all my you know and I had gay friends at the time who were getting you know I watched them being strongly encouraged to get straight um, and I just I found that just oh, completely yeah. just I watched it just hurt people before, you know, I watched it hurt people. I watched people get excommunicated and get cast out of the social circles, get marginalized and get, you know, go through just really painful processes. And, um, you know, I, I think if I'd had that, I probably wouldn't have probably hung out too much in that environment. Um, because I, I, I got pretty, I got pretty strong and, and I don't know, I have a pretty strong streak of self-preservation, um, not necessarily at the expense of other people that doesn't make me feel very good but the 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 idea of like trying to to do my best to kind of live into my own skin and my own life is really part of the reason that spirituality and my faith was really important part of that journey so stepping backwards using religion to do it seemed like a very counterintuitive move yeah and i think like from what it sounds like it was you were just kind of doing your best with what you sort of knew at that time, like kind of going more into the religion aspect of yeah. things. Well, and I, I think for me too, like one of, one of the things that, I mean, I was, I was very serious about trying to, to be the best quote unquote Christian that I could be. And, you know, because, you know, it, well, the funny thing was, was when I hung out with guys people and I got too close to a male friend, I would get warned about not, you know, not having a sexual relationship with men. And then I would get yeah. close to two other women and then I'd get pulled off to the side and say, you know, we're worried that you might be having a sexual relationship with a woman. So I finally just shut everything down. <laughs> oh, I said, listen, you, you know, can't like, hey, touch anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. touch anything or do anything. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that kind of like led to the fact that, like, I think probably around, uh, I don't know, like, certainly by that time I was, I said basically I spent ten years celibate. Like I just shut entirely down, yeah. and I took dating off of the scenario. I took my you know, any sense of wanting to partner or join up with any other human being for for a, a meaningful relationship where it became something I was really cautious of. I didn't even have very good friends because I was so nervous that, you know, as my career developed inside of the faith community and my leadership roles inside of the community yeah. were increasing, I had to be, you know, all of a sudden, and for those who've ever had any kind of life inside of organized religion and any kind of job, or ministry position inside of that, you know, you can lose your job, not because you're bad at your job, but because you're failing some kind of Christian metric or measurement by the yeah, community. Yeah, you have to be like above you. reproach, and, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, and I genuinely like, I, I like my career enough to be doing that. I was serious enough about my faith for a while. But by the time I was in my, my mid to late 20s, I was like, I was lonely. I mean, I didn't have any strong yeah. relationships with anyone, like not not even like a, like a best friend, you know what I mean? Like I just, I had really good friends, yeah. but I was so afraid of, of making intimate connections. And I don't 
by intimate, I don't mean sexual. I just mean intimate, strong, like tell people, you know, really connecting with another human being about what's in your head and what's in your heart. I just, I, it took me a long time to kind of open, open up to that. And like I said, it's like 10 years of celibacy. I'll never get back. But at the end of it, um, I think that was particularly at the end of my contemporary Christian music career. One of the things that was, I couldn't wait to just get out of town was just to take care of myself. I just didn't have any relationships. I didn't have any friends and I didn't trust anyone in those environments because people, a lot of the people in those environments didn't want me to be intimate or open or whatever. So once I kind of cracked that door open, I think it made sense to me that, I, that you know, it, all of a sudden it tracks. You know, I meet, I meet my partner, you know, my now wife. We've been together, you know, over 20 years. And it just it was just nice to meet somebody when I opened the door. Like it was just really lovely. And I've got a lifelong partner from that. And, yeah. you know, it's. It's just kind of a funny thing because I think I spent a large part of this, that 10 years, like if I were to kind of summarize that a little bit, I think what I learned from that is that there's a fear that sometimes that we talk about inside of our faith communities and not talking about what a good relationship is and how that presents that we become so fearful of it. We don't actually know how to build meaningful relationships if we're just avoiding the appearance of evil rather than actually building a good morality and ethic. They're two different tasks. Yeah. If it's all no, 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 then you don't know what, like... (laughs) Absolutely. You you know, if you don't know how, if you don't know how to work with yourself and your body and your person and other people, and you're just avoiding all of those things, you're never going to learn how to, to treat yourself well, or to treat others well. Or Um, learn what you want. You know, and I think, yeah, well, and I think that what's interesting to me too, is like the, like one of like, so, you know, skip ahead into the late nineties and early two thousands where the, the, the true love's weights purity culture became a really marketed and very successful strategy among people who are now in their thirties and forties. And, you know, not, that hasn't necessarily been a good thing. I mean, the kind of shame and and sexual trauma or lack thereof and lack of education and lack of, you know, knowing how to build a healthy and intimate relationship as opposed to just trying to, you know, avoid shame and fear has actually created a lot of marital problems, you know, and a a lot of people that I've met and talked with over the years, especially like when, because I'm so open and talking about this stuff, particularly because the necessity and the LGBTQ kind of conversation, I have straight folks coming up that relate to that process that relate to the process of just going i'm a person who has desires i am a person who has intimacy needs and now i have a church that's been shaming the hell out of me from this experience and i'm lonely and i'm empty and i don't know how to proceed and you know now that you know now that you know those same people have children and are trying to figure out how to to pass this on and it's really one of i think the most significant challenges at least within my last you know 20 30 years that that has been like the 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 epicenter i think of the challenge inside a faith community whether regardless of whether you're straight or or gay or trans or whatever like our religious environments are have really taken a hit in in figuring out how to healthily responsibly ethically and morally and faithfully develop develop a healthy conversation in and around sex, sexuality, gender identity. It's no wonder mm-hmm. why 
it's no wonder why we've been in the, you know, the mess that we've had. Absolutely. And like one thing that I think we have talked about on the podcast before in discussing purity culture is like, I'm like for myself, I went through an entire relationship where my sexual ethic had always been don't. And that's not a sexual <laughs> ethic. That's just like, avoid. that's just like avoidance. And it's, I, it makes me grateful now, like that kids are being taught what consent is from a young age. Like, well, if, if, told, you know, like, public schools will let them, you know, <laughs> if Ron DeSantis has his way. <laughs> I know. But like, even when I was like teaching like the little, cause I used to teach music to toddlers, like being able to say like, oh, like if you don't want a hug, you can say no and that's okay. And like teaching kids to kind of be in charge of their own, their own bodies and their own autonomy. And it's like, the change has been so drastic and it gives me hope for like future generations, but it's also a grieving process for those that came before that are still trying to pick up the pieces from that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, the context of like consent, but there, there's other ways that I've seen inside of our faith communities that have been challenging. And like, I'll draw an interesting parallel that I've often seen. And this is, this was true of, I think, part of my burnout inside of contemporary Christian music. And I think oftentimes with people in leadership positions and how, how difficult it is to, to kind of break that seven year mark inside a faith community or nonprofit work, this idea that what, what faithfulness is, is emptying our, particularly the conversation in around female bodies, <laughs> this idea of our faithfulness yeah. is emptying ourselves out to not have you know, we hear it in all kinds of language, like, you know, I, I want to be doing what God wants me to do and might have God thoughts in my head and not have my own thoughts. And to, to this weird slippery slope that is very, you know, teaches us in the daily language in some of these environments that teaches us to discredit our own sense our own conscience, our own yeah. desires, as if desire is a terrible thing. Desire is incredibly motivating thing. It's, you know, wild, mad desire and, sh- you know, you know, chasing a and ball God created out of us the street. To like, have them? How about that? <laughs> yeah. I, I, imagine that, right? And so if you keep shutting yourself down and shutting yourself down and sh- whatever, over whatever context, it actually, and therapist in the room, it actually creates so much more, pro- so many more problems because we're living in a state of denial. We're not actually figuring out what to do that's healthy in and around our desires. Um, we're, you know, on the backside of that, you know, this idea that we're supposed to be emptying ourselves out to say no as a Christian woman to go, I don't want to do that. No, thank you. I'm not going to go there. Like, what's wrong with you? You're supposed yeah. to be faithful and say, yes, you're supposed to arrive on time and you're supposed to want to make, you know, a hundred cupcakes and you're supposed to want to babysit 20 kids at the same time. And, <sighs> you know, I'm not good at, you know, to say I'm not good at it or I don't desire to do it. It puts people in places where they don't want to be. They're angry and they're upset. They're either harming themselves or harming other people. Instead of trying to figure out what our gifts are, what our desires are, what are natural to us, what are things that, you know, 
teaching us to evaluate our own desires and what we can do to be able to say, is that something I want to follow? Is that something I can follow well? Is that something that's beneficial to me, beneficial to others? Like, what are the consequences if I entertain this? But if you shut it down and you, it becomes the pee under the mattress and a whole lot of bad things can happen over the course of time. Our LGBTQ community has been telling you this, you know, women have been telling you this for a very long time uh and then now you know it's really what what i find it really fascinating is particularly with part of the deconstruction movement and a lot of people kind of talking about more of these issues is that what i find really fascinating is a lot of really well-meaning and faithful people are just trying to be as faithful as they can and they've tried to honor some of these really conservative approaches that are negative rather than trying to get having what can I do positively to build my faith, my spiritual life and participate with my community? And I feel like, you know, that's been a soapbox I've been standing on for so many decades now. that I've got a hole in the top of my soapbox. Um, I, I love that you referred to the evangelical thought pattern of denying yourself as a slippery slope, because, you know, that phrase is also used against like people like us so many times to be like, you know, I actually remember like when I came out to one of my Christian friends, he's like, oh, well, that way of interpreting the Bible is just slippery slope. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, that's a really effective, you know, I do think that's a very uh, effective tactic for somebody who actually really cares. If you don't care, <laughs> you know, if I, I think that's the, the interesting thing about that. And I, I'm sure that's, you know, not like 100%, you know, foolproof. But oftentimes, like, we can push or shame people into consent. Like it's not actually consent. If you kind of edge somebody into saying yes to something or participating in something that they don't feel comfortable yeah. with out of a sense of kind of trying to get along. Like I don't, you know, I, I that slippery slope kind of idea is just like, you know, if we're going to fall down a hill, let, let me fall down a hill. <laughs> like, I, I will, have, I'm what yeah. I'm, you know, I think what, like the argument I would make today, like, and, and I think kind of the difference between me being a 20 year old person and, you know, a 40 something year old person is, you know, when you're a kid, you, you kind of don't want to mess up. Like, as you, mm. I don't know, I can remember being younger and going, well, I'm not going to make a decision because I don't want to get in trouble. And now I will make a decision yeah. going, I will take responsibility for my choice. And if my, you know, I have the maturity to say, if I'm, I want to make, I want to be responsible for the choices that I make. And when I do make a choice, if that does create an error, if that does create a problem, I will be responsible for that. And the ability to get to that place has been getting to the place where I was willing to be responsible for my choices. And that, you know, that took a lot of time and a lot of experience. And I think that argument, you know, that I heard when I was younger was, was not one that was wholly convincing to me. It, it's, you know, I definitely learned through those times is like to spend less time practicing and taking responsibility and avoiding situations where I could learn how to take responsibility for my choices. Yeah, absolutely. And like in like evangelical land as well, it's that thing of like, yeah, like you make mistakes and God forgives you. But it's also that thing of like you feel like almost your eternity is on the line and that you have to be like the representation of your faith and because your whole you life's going to play out before you just like in a chick tract like jeez <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> well i don't want to be you know i don't want to be like totally paying out on evangelicalism necessarily but it is it's no, probably no. you know more more of the the context of 
putting a point to the difficulties that people have had throughout even like my own experience and I attempted to talk about it. And I think generations of people now have been trying to talk about these kinds of issues are kind of stemmed out of like these theological problems that we're identifying or, or turns of phrase or languages like slippery slope to see that that's not actually effective. That's not actually connecting with anybody or to even go, you know, Jesus will say, you know, Jesus forgives us of our sins. Well, what do we really mean by that? And if we just slap it on a bumper sticker and we don't actually spend time and understanding something about what it means to find liberation, what it means to be a participant yeah. in li liberation, what it means to be a participant in our own redemption, and to be, you know, not saying that, like, I, I don't, I don't know that we're stealing anything away from an evangelical cross when I say that I'm an active participant in my own redemption. At some point in time, you know, there is yeah. still, we still even have in, inside of the evangelical community, if you keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again, eventually we're going to credit you with making a choice and a poor one at that. So, you know, if, if I don't like the consequence of, the, of this and I understand something, general, re, gener, genuine repentance tends to come by seeing the harm that an action that we do does to ourselves or to another person. And the redemptive part of that becomes some part of ourselves where we're going, I've seen that harm. I actually, you know, I want to stand here and be confrontational or at least responsible for that harm. And sometimes that harm has no solution. It has no recovery. Hmm. Um, there are some errors yeah. that we make that are so grievous that there's no, there's no way that we can um, make a reparation for that act. Some things are broken irrevocably. And that's the point where grace is a concept that I think we can genuinely talk about. It is this hmm. idea though, that when we keep saying, you know, these little bumper sticker things along the line, instead of like spending time actually talking about real life scenarios and allowing our real personhood to come into these concepts and the ideas, I think are some of the challenges that are, are that we're facing. Um, and I, you know, and I, I, it's been kind of encouraging inside of that environment is that that our our religious tradition and our spiritual communities can be a wellspring of wisdom and support mm -hmm. and and faithfulness if we stop trying to slap the bumper sticker on it and giving people an opportunity mm -hmm. to actually grow and learn inside of their faith and to be the graceful and the helpful and the redemptive and the liberating agents in that project together. Yeah. I, yeah, um, I love that whole like theological reflection you just went on like beautiful, but I did want to pivot back a bit. Um, you've sort of brought up a little bit about your, your career in the uh, contemporary Christian music industry. And I'm curious, like, how did you get into it? What was that like for you? How was it like when you came out? Uh, the sort of narrative I hear is that like the Christian, you know, the music executives like turned against you, but I'm curious about the details or something. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I've had a pretty good win, but yeah, I, I'll just start at the beginning. Um, yeah. I kind of just slid into it. Um, like I said, I kind of started playing guitar at my fellowship of Christian athletes group. I wasn't a great guitar player. Um, part of my kind of growing up, like it was one of this culture things too, where it's like, I would play like cowboy junkie songs or, or uh, indigo girl songs I'm like, Oh, you can't play them. You need to yes. listen to Christian music. So <laughs> I was like trying to be faithful. I'm like, all right, you should write your own stuff. So I started writing my own stuff and my, I joined a band and they liked it, you know, and I just kind of, 
I didn't really aspire to do it. Uh, my friends just liked what I was doing and kept asking me to play. And I mean, I, I as I started playing, I, I liked it more and more and ended up, you know, I'm skipping ahead, but I ended up getting a, inside of a couple years of doing some shows and traveling around the Midwest. Um, I got offered a record deal out of Nashville with Goatee Records. And oh, wow. uh, I... What I love to say, actually, though, is that I, I was so intimidated by the process and I, you know, I didn't see anybody else like me out there. Like I didn't know, you know, at the time is like Twyla Paris and Point of Grace and all these blonde, gorgeous, leggy women. And I just oh my didn't gosh, know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I do not look and sound like that. Like, I don't, what am I going to do? You know, <laughs> like I just, I, cause like, I just, I kn- knew at that point that I didn't really represent or desire to look like the prototypical, you know, pit up Christian girl. <laughs> so um, what I did was I, yeah. I signed with Goatee Records and, you know, they were kind of a hip hop label at the time. Oh, I shouldn't say that. They had Grits, one hip hop band and uh, Out of Eden, but they also had like a couple grunt, like kind of uh, pop band or grunge kind of rock bands like Johnny Q Public and like a bunch of like a bunch of people that were kind of like the misfit toys of Christian music. So I thought, well, you know, I'll sign up with those guys and I'll do a record and it'll be fun. I'll do a couple tours and then I'll go back to school, finish my degree. And that just never happened. (laughs) That took off and I did three records. And then at the end of it, you know, by the time I was 27, I was pretty burned out of the whole affair and uh, thought I was done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's fascinating that the burnout happened at such a, relatively speaking, at such a young age. Like what, what contributed to it? Um, well, I mean, it didn't hurt that I was on the road for about four years straight. I mean, I was doing over a hundred shows, Fair. you know, over a hundred shows a year. There was one year that I'd only been home for wow. maybe two or three weeks in the, in the year. I'd be either been on a bus or airplanes or, you know, in the back of vans and stuff. That sounded weird. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh no I mean, that, and i no, know like, like vicky i read vicky beeching's memoir undivided and that also talks about like the whole grind of the christian music touring thing is tough well yeah because if you're not on the treadmill you're dead you know like there's a real fear of, mm-hmm. of if you stop working yeah. then you're gonna stop you know ju- you know you're you're gonna lose your job basically um but i you know kind of to to go back to the space of like the record executives you know like I had people trying to tell me not to quit at the time. Like I, I spent a year before, like I actually decided to quit in 2001 and I still had a year worth of booked contracts. So I had to work another year um, before I could clear out my calendar. And I kept telling everybody that whole time I said, listen, guys, I'm not adding more dates. I'm done. I don't want to work anymore. I, I can't be in this environment anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, and I am not, I'm getting closer and closer to be a danger to myself. Um, so part of it in general was the fatigue, but part of it too, by the time, you know, I'm 25, 26, you know, my theology was just starting to evolve at that point. And, you know, I think maturing as an adult that there are things that I really wanted to talk about with my audience and things that I could have in private, but it was just this weird kind of thing that once you get on stage these expectations of you know not really ruffling anybody's feathers and 
you know, and I would still, you know, even late into my career, I'd still get onto a stage and, you know, some pastor of a mega church would go, well, you're a woman, so you can't talk that much in between songs. And, you know, would you put, please put some sleeves on or cover up your tattoo or things like that were kind of just annoying. But I think what became really, what became really distressing to me was that I was just more and more starting to get aware that I I was in a position where I think like in terms of what, what people saw in me and what had been marketed to other people's understanding when they met me is that I was endorsing and encouraging a kind of Christianity that I couldn't live, didn't want to live and wanted to have a much more progressive and inclusive conversation in general. Like I wanted to talk about real life stuff and not just kind of toe what, at least in my lifetime in CCM was becoming more and more conservatively evangelical, like behind the scenes, like there are a lot of musicians inside that world that I loved, respect and admired that weren't just evangelicals. There were Christians, there were, you know, Jesuits, there were Lutherans, you know, yeah. Some people really out on the fringe. I called them, I used to call them California Christians because they would drink out in the open and, <laughs> you know, other people would smoke and other people had real life dramas in their lives and they weren't any or more or less faithful. And I, it be, but I was becoming, you know, I, I was, I was successful enough that I was starting to really fear that if people really knew what I was thinking, that they wouldn't give me a job, let alone, let alone that if I got caught having a beer, you know, I mean, I had people dress me down in public in restaurants because they saw me having a glass of wine. Um, you know, just weird things like that. But the worst, the worst of it was, I think in general, just kind of looking to see a generation of young people just being encouraged to be of one mind and to only think a particular way. The true love weights movement was starting to be marketed. Um, people were asking me and expecting me to pull that party line. Like they, they really wanted me to, there were there were people who were offering me great deals of money to go and be the pinup girl for like true love weights and and to do like you know oh, devotional yeah. forwards to uh you know a, a book about purity and targeted to young girls and put my name on the cover of it and sell it to other girls and I'm like no thank you no this is not what I want to talk this is not what I want to be seen as and when I would meet somebody and they would meet the real me they didn't really like it very much and. I was like having to make a decision whether or not I was going to have to start essentially being someone else so I could have a career or follow the thread of who I really was going to be and wanted to be. And I just, I didn't know how to choose against myself so strongly and to live in an environment that particularly as I think some of these things were really the gravity and the marketing and the, the way that culture was being shaped in and around and the way musicians were being used to kind of carry that vehicle of this conservative evangelical Christianity that was heteronormative, you know, gender identity, you know, gender, gender obligations and things like that were just a little bit too much for me. And yeah. I just, I didn't, it, it was really the weight, the guilt of that was just too much for me too. I just, I just really didn't want to be a part of it. And so coupled with the schedule and the frustration and not being able to feel like I could really write the songs and really talk about the things that I was wanting to talk about. Um, people were just looking at me weirder and weirder every time I went out to do a show and I got angrier and angrier because it was just hard for me to, you know, to be, I think it's hard. I think 
and I think this kind of makes sense for a lot of LGBTQ people when you, in some sense, are veiling yourself and, and limiting yourself from your everyday life. It gets really fatiguing very fast. It starts to, oh, you know, we either get sad or angry or harm, you know, start to harm ourselves. And that was, it wasn't necessarily context that I knew then. I, I it wasn't till kind of, I, I decided to retire that I kind of started opening up the possibility that I might have a life after Christian music. So I was like, maybe I might date somebody. And as I was going through all that, that's kind of when I met my partner and I was having a meltdown and I just found a friend in the middle of that. It was a really helpful thing. And it turned out to be um, friends with benefits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like that, it's first of all, like to say that it's a lot is like the biggest freaking understatement of the year. But I can imagine that like not being able to be vulnerable with other people and having to like those all are just such strong trauma responses. And like, how, how were you able to stay like, Strong is such a weird word because I think everyone has resilient. How, how did I not die? Yeah, resilient. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I don't. I don't know if I'd I, say I guess, resilient because like like, again, like yeah, I don't know if I'd say resilient I, I mean, because I, there was a lot yeah. of the time where I was a, a a blubbering, crying fetal position mess. I mean, that was a part that I went and did that that part yeah, by myself for for a long time. But I mean, by the time that I came back and came out in 2010, I think. The res- like if there's an accusation of resiliency inside of that, it's it's part of just the the idea that I just didn't give up on myself. I mean, I do have this weird natural streak of just not, you know, I'd already been kind of worn down at one point and told that I wasn't. A- I'd been through other experiences in my life, and it's kind of what I wrote about in my book. Like I'd been through other experiences in my life where I was kind of believed and told that I was nothing, and I got to this point where I'm like, no, I'm not nothing. I'm pretty amazing and I can do things, <laughs> you know, people, you know, yeah. I can do things and I can love others and other people. Like I, I had other, I opened my heart up to other human beings that were important to me, you know, in, in regular normal life. And that was an extraordinary thing. And had it not been for my faith experience, had it not been for understanding something about my own redemptive qualities and my own particular gifts, I don't think that I would have ever been able to get to that point. So as, as much as I might sound critical on one hand of a movement that sometimes forget these really redeeming and beautiful qualities that our faith tradition has to offer, that, you know, I'm actually get, you know, after I get done taking care of myself, I'm now find myself in a position of going, hey, you don't get to ruin everything. Like, or I shouldn't say it that way, but there's, yeah. there's a lot of really amazing things <laughs> that our faith, I have a hard time, like as mad as I get sometimes about organized religion and, and the pitfalls of even modern evangelical Christianity, what, what is extraordinary and per- perhaps even arguably miraculous is that it, it's actually a meaningful thing to figure out liberation, to understand something of liberation, to understand something about redemption, to understand something about grace. And our faith tradition has the means to be able to understand those qualities. Do we have to take them literally? You know, I think that's up to every individual to make that choice for themselves. But, you know, like toward the end, uh, toward the end, I remember it was in the last year of being, I'd released the record the way I am record. 
It was the very last one that I released on Goatee. And that record for me was a real project in kind of de-supernaturalizing the gospel. Like it was, it was mm-hmm. like, I, I was kind of trying to look like, what if I'd met Jesus? Like what if Jesus was you or me or any of us? You know, I just kind of want to make that a really human experience. And I kind of like took all the shiny tinsel off of it and still like it held <laughs> like th- these kind of qualities. And I remember standing on stage just basically saying, you know, we don't have you know, like I was like one of the songs, The Way I Am is on it. It's like it's better. It's a song and like satirical. And it's like uh, it's from a, one of the words in the it's from the Bible. It's like, it's better, you know, for us to pluck out our eye or rip out our tongue, that kind of thing. Right. Then to kind of cause ourselves to sin. And I wrote this song, it's better off this way to be deaf, dumb and lame than to be the way I am. It's totally satirical. And I set it up. And when I'm talking about it, it's like, if I live the way that I'm taught inside of our faith community, I am going to be nothing, but maybe a torso. Like there's going to be nothing left. I'm not going to have any arms or legs or yeah. hands or ears or mouth. Like it's impossible. It's an, it's impossible the task that we think that we'll ever be able to tick up enough boxes. And as I'm, I'm talking about this, I'm like, I just want to open up to the, I just want to open up the possibility that this is a ridiculous task and that we are all feeling the pressure of this. And we're all feeling like this weird, inevitable shame when we fail our Christian faith because we make some error. And not only within ourselves, if that doesn't feel bad enough, we have the threat of an entire community standing against us, whatever that sin, quote unquote, may be. And I just said, I, I remember having that conversation in front of the audience. And it went from being this, like, it was like over a thousand, you know, like a couple thousand people there. It went from a rocket show to everybody just like, it was like crickets. Like everybody's faces turned like blank and white and faced me and just like, were just staring at me like, I can't believe you just said that. Like, we don't even know how to respond to that. And I just, it was, it was devastating. It, It actually was so devastating to me that I knew that this is where I needed to go. And this is, you know, this is, this is largely where I'm at today. And whenever I'm in faith community, we're talking about a lot of these theological ideas. We're pushing back against trivializing and making, you know, oh, Jesus saves us and that we don't have any participation in it at all. Like that, you know, that there's this immaculate life that we'll ever be able to lead. That's up to like, no, no, it's done. It's finished. So let's talk about what that means and the gratitude that we have for that. And then still like not fail to participate in something meaningful in building our lives. Uh, this is a conversation I was having then. And I think that was part of like just my complete and utter disappointment, knowing that yeah. that's where I wanted to go. And strangely, I think now I have way more. Oh, I'm going to say it out loud. I think I have way more ministry. I serve my faith community far more with that conversation today <laughs> Yeah, in the oh, bars definitely. and the clubs that I'm going to and caring for the wayward souls that are still faithful, that are still trying to find a meaningful life when they show up and just giving folks permission to the consent to listen to your own heart, to figure out who you are and to explore that and to be amazed at your own life and who you've been created to be. It's a glorious thing to figure out how you are loved by yourself, by others. And if, if God is a part of that equation, even more so. So, you know, it was, it was just part of, I think kind of the end, I think that's all to say, I think part of it, the end, it would just felt like it was a bit of a heartbreak. Like I just felt so disappointed that the love that I had to give to my audience wouldn't be allowed. 
for me to be able to express it in that way. So I just thought my opportunity to do that was over and it was heartbreaking. And that's so unfortunate because, yeah, like I definitely, you know, as a student in seminary, one of my big things that explores like bringing our full selves to God is like such an important part of like human flourishing and spirituality, you know? And so like any theology that's trying to compartmentalize or cut out parts of ourselves, not good. Bad theology kills. Yeah. Yeah. I I love, I love that point. I love that. That's often like the, the concept that is like one of the benchmarks for me in, in a, in a, in a theology particularly in, in relationship to others, like in, or determining whether something's beneficial or not beneficial, you know, if we whittle it down to good or bad, I'm not a big proponent of those particular words. They're too, they're, they're not as nuanced as I like to be, but it is really a decision about flourishing. What does it mean to be life-giving? I mean, if we look at the cross in that sense, and we look at the gospel in that sense, what we're essentially talking about in, in eternal life is unending life, something that grows and grows and grows that isn't, you know, like the defeat at the cross, if we talk about it in that context, is the defeat over death. It's the defeat over an end that mm-hmm. that cuts off, that restricts. And so when we talk about liberation, you know, these things are not far apart from, from one another. And so I think there's a possibility, and I've thought it for a long time, and I've talked about it for a long time, what if I stop looking at all the things that I don't, I don't want to live my life restricted anymore. That's the strange thing. When you figure out a joy, when you figure out a way to grow, you actually really do want to grow. When you figure out a way to learn something new, it's really appealing to be able to learn something, you know, nothing kills a human spirit more than to, to put a lid on top of them and tell them that they can't. Like, I, I just, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, you know, in terms of the LGBTQ kind of faith category, you know, like God doesn't love you kind of motif. You don't even have to believe in God. An atheist is offended by that idea that, you know, you you may not care, you know, you may not have a care of like an anthropomorphic gods, you know, favor of you or not. That if you, I'm, I'm speaking to an atheist, but you know what the insult means. It's an ultimate insult. Yeah. It is the biggest thing that you can imagine reaching into, the, you know, the, the heavens as far away from us as possible. And every atom in the universe denying your existence and your, your will to grow. I mean, that is just the most horrible terrible thing when we talk about a faith tradition that's talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth and humanity and every atom in our bodies why would our creator want to kill why why wouldn't you know it seems it seems kind of counterintuitive to to this discipline or to this vision of trying to understand why would i why would i go through such lengths to try to communicate something to you that there is unending opportunities to flourish there is there but there has to be a choice to participate in that and i i i don't think in that sense that's probably where i agree with evangelicals kind of to agree that accepting of jesus component hear me out for a second the the part where we take an act we take an active choice that says this is a human being that i want to be this is the this is the kind of investment that I'm going to make in my care and my spiritual self and my discipline and to choose to be a mat, you know, figure out how to be a master of myself in the sense of, you know, 
having command of what we aim to do, having, you know, command of being able to, to make some choose, you know, make some choices and options with other people and love being part of that being one of the most profound choices of all. I mean, love is a choice about not prosperity, but of flourishing. And they're two different words, meaning wildly different things. But I love that word like that. And to me, is like if you need something simple, that's still profound. I think you can be, you know, I think you can create a simply spoken formula to say, listen, what is the merit of this decision or this action or this concern? Will what, you know, the long term consequence, will it be flourishing or, you know, what is its ability to flourish, flourish in others? And I'll bring that argument back to the queer community, like our coming out, our collective voices being heard inside of our faith community has been a profound impact. The, mm-hmm. the, the story, right. Of going, Oh, well, they're, you know, they've come out. So now you've opened up the door to your darkness and you're going to fall over and die. No, we're flourishing. We're flourishing inside of communities yeah. where our voices are heard, where we're allowed to speak, where we're making connections. And it's light in that light light allows things to flourish you know it's a really beautiful thing like yeah. so come out open up the doors if you can it's a it's a wonderful experience speaking of Ooh, coming absolutely. out i am curious about i guess what that process was like for you because i know i was reading i i like googled before this interview like of jennifer knapp coming out to see like and i saw like christianity today had an article and like a bunch of other publications um yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I'd recommend that. I mean, not everybody gets a chance to have a well-timed uh, media blitz about their sexual orientation. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'd been with my partner at that time, you know, for, for several, several years. Um, so coming out, like, privately, like, I had a, I had a normal life, right? Like, I like my friends yeah. and family, every, you know, I wasn't ever not out, but when it comes to going out and living a public life, no, you know, I knew I was going to like, I knew that when I started making music again, people were assuming that I was straight. And then I also didn't want people to like see me with my, my partner and think that I was in any way. And this is a little bit of my response to a faith community. I didn't want people to think any way that I was embarrassed or ashamed of that. Like I wanted people to know that mm-hmm. that was, a decision or like that I was happy to be seen that way. I didn't want there to be any kind of question about yeah. it. Um, and I did debate for a while about whether or not I would deal with this publicly. Mostly it's mostly, it's just not because I, I, I didn't, I definitely wanted, like, I didn't want to hide it. So that was one of the issues, but it's so weird to think, okay, now we have to inform the general public about my, what my sexual orientation is. Like that is just such a bizarre thing to do. So, you know, we did a, I did an interview with Reuters. I did an interview with Christianity Today and, uh, oh, The Advocate Magazine. So I, I hit the gay media, I hit the Christian media and I hit the normal. <laughs> I'm, surprised I hit all your well, I'm surprised about Christianity Today just cause like, you know, I know that it's more conservative bent and it has definitely um, fumbled the bag on some things. You know, they had a really, bad um like uh editorial about rachel held evans when she passed but yeah so it was just you know but i mean it's a really weird thing but i mean it it was you know and then what was funny is i did all those interviews and then all these other people more famous than me kept coming out so they kept having to bump my release date on gayness (laughs) 
Oh my god! So I was I what is it? Mar? I think I was like kind of scheduled to come out. I did the interviews I think in February or January or something that year, and they were planning on having them come out in March. And so you know you're kind of like getting all suited up and ready for the blows that you're going to take and the kind of media storm. And they're like, oh, we're going to push you another week because Ricky Martin just came out. Oh, we're going to push you another week because Shelly Wright came out. And so before it, it was like three weeks later, and I'm just like starting to get more and more stressed out while I'm you know in the gay queue to come out. And uh, so it finally dropped, yeah. and it it <laughs> you know they're kind of the rest is history. But the, I think the the good part about that and kind of the second follow-up that people ask is like, you know, kind of what was that like? And I think everything that I imagined that would be bad was bad. I mean, all of the, all of the, all of the things that people say were at least almost boring kind of in a way, like they just weren't that creative. I got a, I got a, a mm-hmm. every once in a while I see something creative that actually makes me laugh. I was like, Oh, at least you're trying. Um, but I mean, yeah. you know, all the things like you're going to go to hell, your arms are going to fall off. People were sending back records. I got a couple death threats in there. I mean, I, I think as a woman, I think I think it's important to say that I got a lighter run of it than my male counterparts that have come out inside a religious community. Mm-hmm. Like that can be a mm-hmm. lot more violent and a lot more aggressive. Um, but for the most part, like I spent most of my time just comforting other people. Like all that, you know, this I didn't. I don't think I did. I think the thing I didn't anticipate was how much genuinely loving and caring and helpful support, like as tough as that was to kind of get through, because it's just not easy to have like thousands upon thousand people who have never met you to scatter the internet with, you know, a debate about your, your quality and your character, you know, the goodness of your character. Yeah, It's just, it's such, you know, based on the physical body of my partner, (laughs) like it's not even about, it's weird. It is just such a weird and bizarre scenario, but to get through that was really a surprising task. Um, not on my own, but I think just day after day, just so many people that were kind and generous to me, and then on top one, two, to have other people that I could care for in that space, people showing up to, to shows that just needed hugs and love and, and, you know, to say, thank you. You did something that gave me something I can hand my mom. <laughs> this is what this, yeah. that's me, mm-hmm. you know, to see. And I, and I think that tracks back to even, you know, going, why didn't I kind of make, why didn't I know that I was gay sooner and, and just really, you know, like seeing seeing yourself reflected in the world. Like I understand now, I think a little bit more than I did about how important that is to be able to see that you may, you know, what, what is to be able to see something out loud of something that just feels like perhaps an imagination or something made up inside of your head. When you can see yourself, you know, in a mirror, when you can see yourself out in the world, you can see other people like you, it's really a genuinely helpful thing. And, you know, I think it had been a long time since, uh, a female body had come out as gay inside of Christian music. It had been over like, it had been over 30 years, I think since Marcia, Marcia, Marcia Stevens had come out in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And that didn't, you know, that didn't make kind of a press thing, but yeah, it was really interesting to be able to do that. And I think the end result was just, yeah, the joy that I had of being able to have that support is, you know, 
like part of the resiliency is they I had an, a family that was there with me the whole way. Like they they didn't hesitate. I said this is going to happen and they had my back and there was no question that when I was, you know, when I had a rough day that I had people that had my back, just real people who knew me and that I could go and cry and cuss and say irrational things to and then get back up and go back out and love on people. So, you know, having people show yeah. up that I could serve and a community that really gave me something to do on the bad days. And that same community put water bank, you know, put fuel back in my gas tank every day. So I, I don't regret it. It's been a really incredible experience to do. And I think the thing I'll say inside of that is that what, what I'm learning is that each one of us, I think, whether you know, not all of us get a, like a, a national media blitz uh, to yeah. be, you know, to our coming out. But every time that we, I, I think it's, it shows that every time that we're willing to kind of show and share ourselves when we're comfortable enough and strong enough to be able to know ourselves well enough to be able to put a little bit of that out into the world, whether it's, you know, with your best friend or your, your parents or with a, an intimate friend or even a stranger, that's a real gift to be able to offer yourself to somebody else. And as our LGBTQ community has taken those risks along the years, I think that's only been an act of flourishing. It's not only a kindness that you do to yourself by letting yourself out and getting some air, but there's going to be a kid somewhere or a neighbor next to you or somebody else some way mm-hmm. who sees you sharing the gift of you. Yeah. out in the world the gift of you it's not just this you know, about our sexual orientation it's the gift of you whole and upright and proud mm-hmm. of yourself mm-hmm. that act and letting other yes. people see you enjoy that is a beautiful yeah beautiful thing absolutely couldn't honestly could not have said it better myself um so i guess you know post coming out you've done i know i you sometimes have done the the inside out faith um talks and other sorts of things that you're still performing um so yeah i guess maybe chat a bit about the work you're doing now and maybe shout out various ways that our listeners could support you well yeah actually uh i'm well i mean the the easy stuff is i'm still out doing shows um still doing you know a lot of advocacy for lgbtq stuff so uh yeah, I do a variety of different things along that line, but uh, I'm getting ready to go into the studio right now um, to re-record my very first record from Goatee, uh, Kansas, which is You're my first record. You're making a Taylor's it's, version? Is it a Jenner's first version? <laughs> It is a 25 years old this year. So in, in honor of that 25 years oh, and incredible. all of our growing up with that, I'm going to go and re-record that. And um, working with a friend of mine, Steve Hindelong, who did the City on the Hill project, and we're going to do a Kickstarter campaign. But if you go by jennifernapp.com, you'll see all that. It's going to be a fun little journey in the next few months. That's amazing. But I'm glad That's to so see exciting. you guys enthusiastic about it. That's really great. Well, oh my I gosh, mean, especially yeah. with the popularity of Taylor's version, I feel like especially like ex-evangelicals are going to love it. And like, you know, the gay Christians are all going to love it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yay. Um, well, Anna, do you I'm have any like more questions? I'm like weirdly having like an allergic reaction to something. What's that? Oh, shoot. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just starting to get like snoggy and sniffy. It's weird. I didn't eat anything. I don't know what my what my story is, but sorry, my I just noticed my face is getting like really red. 
oh. I'm fine. But oh gosh, okay. It's well, just funny. I just didn't want you to think time. that I was like super drunk or anything. <laughs> you're good. You're good. All good. But yeah, I guess in a way, perfect timing. I think. Oh, you can uh, edit that part gonna... out. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah. We're we're basically oh going to be yeah, no, I'm not, anyway. I'm not keeping. I'm not keeping. I wouldn't. I would never keep that sort of thing in. <laughs> Sorry, I just that I is like... the inside joke we bring up later down the line. No one else gets to know about that. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> You're totally fine, but yeah, uh, it was an honor to have you on the show. Um, thank you so much for sharing, and um, yeah, we can't wait to support your re-release and. We hope that all of you out there will be able to support and listen. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. Okay, you want to go into high of the week? I know what your oh high gosh. of the week is. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> I guess I can start my high of the week is I moved. Um, I moved in with my partner and we have been in the process of moving the last couple of weeks. Um, our house is starting to look, or our apartment, I should say. It's not a house. What are we? Boomers. Um, <laughs> but our our apartment is starting to look like a home. So that's looking really nice. Uh, but yeah, that whole experience, it's been incredible. And you've got a closet I for do. podcasting in, just like Matthias exactly. Roberts. It's a closet. Um, <laughs> it could also be comparable to... And I say this with the acknowledgement that J.K. Rowling's a turf. It's kind of like a Harry Potter cupboard under the stairs. Um, so yeah, I'm planning on putting pillows and like pride stuff, and just having it be a little, a little recording booth. So yeah, it's been stressful, but it's. I know that the end result is going to be awesome. So I'm looking forward to just getting through all the moving process and being able to just live. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to like be able to you to give me like a little tour and also to meet your partner yes. virtually. That will be Yeah, fun she as wants well. to meet you as um, well. So the feeling is definitely mutual. <laughs> yes. Um and I guess for me, honestly, high of the week was just eating some good food Ooh, last yes. week. I mean, you know, we gotta we gotta be clear, fuck colonialism, fuck the sort of like, you know, history of Thanksgiving that mm-hmm. we tell. But like, you know, it's a good time to just have a day off and eat good food with people. Yeah. Um, like you can kind so, of pull yeah, those things nice. at once. Like you can enjoy it with your family or your chosen family. And it's a time to enjoy a meal mm-hmm. together. Um, but also it's sucks that the history of the holiday is so rooted in colonialism and colonialism sucks. And mm-hmm. yeah. And also a sort of <laughs> comment I made to my <laughs> roommate, I was like, I I am very much a socialist, but I every every year for one morning I just engage in the capitalistic thing that is the Macy's, Macy's Thanksgiving Listen, Day Parade. It was great you know? and there was a bluey float. <laughs> also there was a Luffy float or a Luffy balloon. This year, too. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I my favorite parts are the Broadway performances. And this year, another high of the week, honestly, um, the cast of the new musical, How to Dance in Ohio, which features seven autistic <gasps> characters played by autistic That's actors, amazing. like a first in the broad, like the actual Broadway, you know, the, uh, what is it called? The, the great, White the Way. The Great White the Way, yes. Way. Yeah, yeah. And that hasn't really happened before. And so it was beautiful to see. And like, you know, given that this... Like parade is watched by so many people every year. To have that story featured That's is incredible. really really cool. So 
I was very excited to see the Shucked cast perform because I got to see Shucked oh, in yeah. New York a few months ago. <laughs> I, it was so hilarious that they were on the Jolly Green Giant float. I think that's brilliant. And I think last year it was Corn Kid that was on the Jolly oh, Green right, Giant float. yeah. So like... <laughs> Listen, there's a theme here. There's a theme and I love it. Also, did you watch the, the Purina dog show afterwards? No, I actually don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't do gotcha. that once I... Actually, my tradition is once I finish watching the parade, then I turn on my Christmas music playlist. Like that's the, it's the first day where I can listen oh, to Christmas music. Oh, I love music, that. So. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, um, next, speaking of Christmas, our next episode, we're talking about um, the war on Christmas and other bunkers conspiracy yes, stuff. Be so a, I'm excited. Um, spoiler alert. There is not a war on Christmas, but we're going to talk about the people who yell about. I know, it you know, thing, like so. there have been wars on other holidays. Uh, you know, there was a whole ass fucking world war on all Jewish. Holidays. I mean, actually, you know, Christmas is canceled in in Palestine. Yeah, I will but you say don't that. see any like they're not going to have people getting mad about that, do you? <laughs> but yeah, yeah it'll be a, it'll be a um, little bit more of a fun episode to be able to just chit chat and talk about it and yeah thank you so much for tuning into this episode of reclaiming the garden you can follow us on instagram youtube and facebook at reclaiming the garden or on twitter at rt garden podcast be sure to check out our patreon for exclusive episodes and you can always check out our merch store to get t-shirts mugs and other fun merchandise if you are able to, please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as it does boost us in the algorithm, but we are grateful that you are here and listening, so if that's all you can do, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you soon.